All right. First of all, picking up from uh, last time, we we're picking up uh, lesson 14, the last part of chapter 14, um, talking about the means of grace. We've talked about the word of God as a means of grace, um, specifically the gospel, uh, the gospel in that word. Um, you and I know that the word of God also contains both law and gospel. Um, the gospel itself is the means of grace. Um, the law is not. The law is, is present um, both in the word of God and outside of the word of God. Um, but the law does not create faith, um, strictly speaking. The law can prepare the way and um, convict somebody of sin, bring them to repentance. Or sometimes just the result of life in a sinful world can make them realize that things are not as they should be. And, um, and then the Christian has the opportunity to say, here is, here is the something more that you need. Um, and so when we talk about this, you know, we, strictly speaking, there's one means of grace, the gospel, that shows up in word and sacraments, um, or the two sacraments of the Lord's Supper and Holy Baptism. Any questions from last time? Uh, we finished up about baptism. And then we just got into the Lord's Supper. Cool, pretty uh, simple, straightforward. Um, we talked about the three communions. Um, that word communion, if you look in um, 1 Corinthians 11, that's probably the best place for it. And, um, and I think the EHV does a fairly, fairly good job of translating that for us. Um, in 1 Corinthians 11, we talk about a sharing together that the, uh, the, the body of Christ shares together in that same space, um, so to speak, with the, with the bread. And the blood of Christ shares together in that same space uh, with the wine. So there's a koinonia, a fellowship, a, uh, a sharing together. Uh, 1 Corinthians, um, let's see, 11. Yeah, there we are. And so if you look at, at 1 Corinthians 11, we'll shrink this down just a little bit. Sorry, wrong one. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 talks about this. And when we talk about this, um, the, the primary thing to note, I guess the, the first thing to note when we come here is that the words of institution are recorded for us in four places. Um, can we name a, at least a couple of those? The four of the four places where the words of institution are recorded for us. All right, <laughs> yeah, they were they were they were spoken in the upper room. Excellent, thank you. I was thinking of the uh, the four books of the Bible where um, where we have the words of institution. Some. Yep, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic gospels, so they see things the same way, written right around in the same about 15 to maybe 20 year time period. Um, not recorded in the Gospel of John, um, but they are recorded in 1 Corinthians 15. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 11, rather. And, um, and if you look at Paul's history of his life um, throughout that we have in the, the book of Acts, and when he talks about it, and then allusions that he has in his in his letters, it it certainly seems that after his conversion, then he went back to Jerusalem, and then he basically spent three years in the the desert, the wilderness of Arabia, um, walking and talking with Jesus, and Jesus gave him, you know, the rundown and all the the same basic teaching that he had given to the other apostles during their time as apostles. Um, and so that's where Paul, um, when Paul talks about this, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Um, and so that receiving in verse 23 is probably referring to the time when Jesus specifically spent time with him and repeated even after he was you know, glorified in eternity for all eternity now. Um, even after he was glorified, he repeated the words of institution and the setting. Um, so Lord Jesus Christ, in the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then repeats the, um, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Uh, verse 25, that word testament. <clears throat> um, we sometimes talk about like a testament, you know, like a last will and testament. Um, and, and so it's like a, a legal guarantee for, for those who are left behind, who are, who are left, um, that they will receive the benefits that are promised in that document. Um, the other term that we have in relation to the Lord's Supper is a covenant. This is the, the new covenant in my blood. Um, and in that, that's pulling from the Old Testament image of a covenant with God, and that God is the one who seals the covenant between himself and his people, and he seals this covenant with blood. Um, I don't know how we got over the Tyndale Bible Dictionary on that. So this cup is the New Testament in my blood. When Jesus says that in verse, uh, verse 25, um, we should recognize that he is being serious here, that, you know, when you sit down and you write a will with a lawyer, that you are being serious, and then he'll, he'll take all the notes, and then he'll bring you the first draft and say, how does this look, walk you through it. It's a very serious thing. It's not just, you know, a willy-nilly kind of a, an ordeal. Um, so do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, let's see, where are we? So that's the, that's the, uh, the other point where we're really talking about this. Um, the other part where it comes up, you know, specifically in first Corinthians is first Corinthians 10, uh, verses 16 and, and 17, um, where, you know, that, that, that's at the end of, you know, basically a, a 17, well, uh, it's in the middle of a 20 verse or so section on fellowship and the big idea about fellowship there and the point that he's going to make in verse 18 is that the altar you eat at is where you have fellowship that you are participants in the altar where you eat um, and so he he's going to be talking about that in verse 18 those who eat the sacrifices are partners of the altar um, and so the Corinthians, he is dealing particularly with this idea that they could participate in the pagan sacrifices, and then they could also come to the Lord's table, and they're like, well, what's the big deal? Because that's an idol, and that's nothing, and I know it isn't anything, and now I'm just going to come to the Lord's table. Um, and Paul, Paul uses this word uh, that the EHV translated, um, the cup of blessing that we, that we bless, is it not a communion? partaking of the blood of Christ or the bread that we break is it not a communion of the body of Christ or a, a joint partaking of the body of Christ um, and you know that that's the idea um, I think we, we don't use the word communion very often you know I'm gonna have my my, my neighbors and my grandkids over for uh, for communion at our house tonight you know like you could just say we're having we're having a good time we're having fellowship together you're watching the football game or whatever communion is very much a church word um and that's where i had thought this was a different you know different word that they had ended up with um a joint partaking in or a sharing together in the body of christ um and so the image that he has for us is you know we think of fellowship like um like around a table here and it's like i know you you know me um, we all know each other and then there's this we are united around a common interest but when we get to the lord's supper um we are united through that table through the the joint partaking in the joint sharing together in um in that that sacrament um that is jesus sacrifice which was once for all and the benefits of that are redistributed again with his body and blood um, and so that's where I, I kind of like the footnote more than what they put in the body text of First uh, Corinthians 10 in the EHV, um, that it is a joint partaking, that it is a, a sharing together. Um, we're not talking about a noun, but it is an eating and, an, and a drinking together. All right, so far so good. Any questions? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so then, when we get to when we get to communion, um, there are there are three basic teachings on the Lord's Supper, um, and and they, you know, what are they? I guess would be the first thing that comes to mind. 
um, whether you use the, the big word or not. <laughs> okay, we'll start with the easy one. What do we call um, the, the Lutheran, the Lutheran um, teaching that we have is called the real presence. Um, and so the real presence um, says that in the, in the proper use of the sacrament, um, Jesus Christ is truly present in body and in blood together with those particular elements. Um, and so the, the kind of phrasing that the, that the Lutherans used pretty early on was in, with, and under. Well, is he in the bread? Yes. Is he with the bread? Yes. Is he under the bread? Yes. Um, and same with the wine. And, and we get that, you know, it's, it's very, it's clear enough from the words of institution, but it's also there in first Corinthians 10 and 11, um, that is not the bread under like, yeah. Oh, good question. Yeah. When, when we say, um, in, with, and under. You know, when you say under, you'd be like, something is under the table. I will look under the table and then I will see it. Oh, it's a, it's a hat. Um, when we say under with, with that connotation, what they, what they mean is like concealed underneath the appearance of, or concealed underneath the bread itself. Not like physically placed underneath, but concealed under where the, the bread is only the only thing perceivable by our, by our human reason and senses. Yeah. Why did we? Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. When we say when we say in with and under, we we are talking specifically about um about his his real presence, um and so the question that we get there, um the first question to ask to tease this out a little bit is what does a person receive by mouth? Um, we touched on that a little bit last week. Um, and that is, that is the question, um, because if you say that a person only receives bread and wine by mouth, then you're going against the clear words of scripture. And, um, and that's something that we would call representationalism. You hear the word represent. Um, and then if it's an ism, you know, it's usually an overemphasis of some sort. So representationalism that the, the bread and the wine simply represent Christ's body and blood. Um, and, and that is, that is not the case. And that idea is, um, usually connected with the Calvinist idea that since his ascension, Jesus is locked up in heaven and he can't actually be everywhere at the same time because he's still man. And so they, they, that issue, and this is why, this is one of the reasons why we have communion every Sunday, um, is because it's, it's become increasingly difficult to find good Lutheran hymns that everybody likes to sing. And so we have wrapped in a number of other hymns that are written by, you know, believing Christians, well-meaning Christians who have a, a different theology. Um, and so if we have Holy Communion like every Sunday or all the time, um, then you can talk about it more often and you say, well, close communion matters because Christ is truly present in with and under the bread and the wine. Um, and so that, you know, that is a little bit on representationalism that, that these things simply represent. Um, and sometimes, and together with representationalism, where we don't want to, you know, get off the rails is this word symbol. Because <laughs> um, that, that's in some of our hymns, um, you know, like here are the symbols that we confess. Um, we don't mean that as, as the way that you and I normally use the term symbolic. But when we use the word symbol as a church word, um, it's, it's basically synonymous with a confession. So your confession of faith, um, the confession of the Nicene Creed or the, the Apostles' Creed or Athanasian Creed, um, we call the confessions in the Book of Concord the, the symbols of the Lutheran faith because they are the confessions of the Lutheran faith. And we kind of we recognize that from the way that we use this, the word symbol that you know if you wear a symbol for um the cleveland baseball team then you are in some way associated with them or you're in favor of them or whoever whatever it is um, as a christian when we have these symbols we don't mean that it is something merely symbolic but we mean that this is part of our confession um that that's one word that will 
that probably won't make the cut in the next hymnal uh, because it's already been lost most of its meaning. So then, especially when we get back to in, with, and under is the real presence, um, the question of in, um, in. <laughs> There's a term, if you um, look at John chapter 6, um, John chapter 6 is um, the bread of life discourse, and it is immediately after Jesus feeds the 5,000. So, you know, feeding of the 5,000, the first peak of his popularity, and uh, the feeding of the 5,000 recorded one of his miracles that's recorded in all four, um, all four Gospels. And in John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, he dismisses the crowd. Um, he stays where he is, and he dismisses his disciples as well. Well, the next day, the people are looking for him. Um, and this is like halfway through John chapter 6. We'll just scroll down a little bit. Um, yeah, verse 22 is where we're going to be picking that up. Um, and so the, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea noticed that there was only one boat there. They knew that Jesus hadn't left with the disciples, um, but that they, that they were like, wait, where is Jesus? We can't find him. And then some boats come from a different part of the lake, and Jesus wasn't there. And so they finally tracked Jesus down. In verse 25, they found him on the other side of the sea, and they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And this is, um, this is I guess, important um, because when we, when we get to the discussion of the Lord's Supper, that number one, the Lord's Supper, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, but there's a lot of confusion as to what John 6 means. Um, because Jesus is going to be talking about, talking about himself as the bread of life. Um, like verse 26, you're not looking for me because you saw the miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So he's, and he's talking to basically people who they got a good meal out of it and they are coming back for more. Um, but it's not, it's not because they're even coming in faith or not because they even believed um, that he had done this miracle. And, and so he's going to be talking about, you know, the basic thesis of this is uh, talking about the food that endures to eternal life. So, and, and this contrast between working for food that spoils and the Get, receiving the food that gives that uh, endures to eternal life, um, and so they kind of go back and forth for a while until verse thirty-five. Um, verse thirty-five, um, Jesus, you know, they're like, you know, give us a miraculous sign. And verse thirty-five, Jesus says, "I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never be hungry. The one who believes in me will never be thirsty. Um, but I have said to you that you also have seen me, and you do not believe." Um, John 6 is a, a fantastic parallel to John 4 when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And, um, and he says that he's going to give her water that, you know, that she won't have to be thirsty again. And, um, and he talks about living water. Uh, living water in John 4 is a direct parallel to the bread of life in John 6. Um, and he even, he even refers to, to that a little bit, I think, in verse 35 that they will never be hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. Um, so then we, we, we keep going, and then they're like, oh, he's saying some hard things. I didn't come here for a sermon. I came here for a, for a meal. I came here for supper. I'm like, there's got to be some alliteration there. I didn't come for a sermon. I came for supper. Um, and they're like, oh, how can he say that I've come down from heaven? Uh, so they, they keep going. And Jesus keeps talking, you know, verse 48, he repeats himself and he says the same thing that he said previously, verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At this, the Jews argued among himself, among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, amen, amen, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. 
Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven um, in comparison to manna in the Old Testament. Um, so we, I guess we, we have to talk about um, John 6 a little bit when we're talking about the Lord's Supper um, because, you know, the big question is, to what degree does this talk about the Lord's Supper? That is the question. <laughs> and and, and I'll, I'll, I'll word it like that, to like, to what degree does this talk about the Lord's Supper? Um, first of all, it's not talking about the Lord's Supper um, because it hasn't been instituted yet. That is going to happen on Monday, Thursday evening. And, and it nails us, it down for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians, um, and that even after he is in his eternally exalted state, Jesus repeats the words of institution and the setting of that supper. So number one, it has not been instituted yet. Um, number two, he's talking here in John 6 to unbelievers. He's talking to people who, yeah, they, they're looking for supper and they get a sermon. Um, he's talking to the believer, these people who are like, you know, prove it, you know, give us manna like Moses did. And Jesus says, you know what, we're, we're way beyond that point. Um, so he's talking to unbelievers and they are grumbling against him and they are angry with him. Uh, number three reason why it's not talking about the Lord's Supper is that there's no actual eating or drinking that happens here. Um, Jesus says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink, but nobody's eating or drinking here. They're not sitting down. Um, number four reason um, is the wording that he uses. Um, he uses the word flesh, uh, which is like sarks. So sarcasm is a, is a humor that kind of cuts the flesh a little bit. Uh, so it's, it's humorous because it's kind of cutting. So sarks is the word for flesh. Um, as opposed to when he talks about the Lord's Supper, take and eat, this is my body. That isn't a translator's preference. Body is an entirely different word, so soma. Um, and so you're like, you know, the new church on, on Glendale um, is called Soma City. Not the greatest of, of, of church name choices, but I've heard worse. Um, and because they're like, oh, we're, we're the body of Christ. I, I think that's what they're going for. Um, or we, we're more familiar with it with, you know, a psychosomatic um, where you have a, a, a pain in your brain that makes you feel a pain in your body. Um, and so if somebody, yeah, like a phantom limb, um, you get a foot amputated and it still itches and you can't itch it because you don't have a foot there anymore. Um, you know, for instance, that, that, is, a, that is a psychosomatic um, pain or disorder. Um, and so the word soma is body so psychosomatic psycho meaning like spirit or brain is how we kind of use it soma meaning body so it's a so it's a brain or a spirit body injury um so jesus uses the word soma so it's a it's a different word um from um sarks meaning flesh whoever eats my flesh and versus soma meaning body they are different um let's see what else I think those those are the those are the main reasons. Um, there's a couple more that aren't coming to mind right offhand, but those are the main reasons why John six is not talking about the Lord's Supper, um, because. So then, what is it talking about? Um, John six, I think you know, aside from John four as an explanation, um, John one is probably the the easiest and the most straightforward. Um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, uh, He was with God in the beginning, the Word became flesh, there's our Word, and made His dwelling among us. Um, and so Jesus is, is picking up and using the same Word that John is going to use for the introduction to the Gospel of John, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Oh, there's, and there's more. Um, and he says that the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, so the, the simple solution to John 6 is, is John 1, that what Jesus is talking about here is faith. Um, in verse 54 and verse 55 and 56, um, that's, that's 
one of the other major reasons why John 6 is not talking about the Lord's Supper, aside from the fact that it hasn't been instituted, is that Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Um, Is it possible that at any point throughout Christian history that somebody has communed at the Lord's table, and then at some point after that, they have fallen away from the faith and, um, and died without faith? It's not just possible. You know that it's happened. Um, it's probably happened from you know all the churches that you or I have ever been members at, um, and so we since we know that's a reality, we we also know that then Jesus' words would not be fulfilled here if they were talking about the Lord's Supper, um, because if they were talking about the Lord's Supper strictly and specifically, then anybody who communes at the Lord's table will have eternal life without fail. So what are we talking about? What we're talking about in John 6 is is faith. And and this will be the connection to, there may be some illusion going on here, a little bit of like paving the way, um, but, but it's at least opening our eyes. John 6 is talking about faith because everything that Jesus says about eating his body and drinking his blood, um, or if you want to put it in terms of John 1, everything that he says about inwardly digesting his word is something that that believers do. And he's talking to this group of unbelievers who, and he's basically using this figure of speech to hide from them and to convict them in their their unbelief. Um, And so he doesn't, He's not revealing to them all the the truth of God's word by simply laying it out for them. He's done that multiple times already. What he's talking about here is is faith. That the one who eats his flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Um, He remains in me and I in him, verse 56. Um, And that, you know, John, the Gospel of John, if you read it, it's like a spiral staircase. Um, it just keeps going around. It, um, so 21 chapters actually divides up pretty well into, into groups of seven. Um, and then the, the center chapter, you know, chapter 11 being the, like the, the chapter where you could basically fold the whole Gospel of John in half along that. Um, so the idea of a spiral staircase, that the idea that, John's, that John starts with in chapter one and two is and three, I guess, is something that he's going to come around to like six or seven more times. Um, and he's going to add a little bit to the picture every time. The idea of folding the Gospel of John in half um, would, then, would then basically line up John 1 with, um, you know, John 20 and 21. Um, and so the, the middle chapter, John 11, being when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, John 1, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Um, John 20, 21, um, and 22, I guess, that Jesus has raised himself, you know, 22. Um, Jesus has raised himself from the dead, and the one who became flesh now is, you know, going to be ascending into heaven. Um, That he is not dwelling among us in in the same way. Um, That he's going to return to his father, and it'll be different, Um, but better than before the word became flesh. So then what is what else is John 6 talking about? Um, it may provide an illustration um, for, for Holy Communion. It may be Jesus alluding to you know, or opening the door to say, hey, I'm going to talk about this later with my believers. Um, but in this group of unbelievers, I'm just going to cover, cover the, the topic of faith. Because um, I, I, I don't think you can say much more than that. Um, because why this matters then is the historically the, the Calvinist idea that this only represents Christ's body and only represents Christ's blood. They'll say, oh, but John 6, John 6 says, Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, and we all know that's metaphorical. So therefore, Jesus must be speaking metaphorically in these words of institution. And John 6, you know, there's all these unbelievers here, and he talks about his flesh and his, and his blood. Um, therefore, you know, therefore, when he's talking about uh, the Lord's Supper, then there should be no restriction on who communes at the table. Um, and it sounds almost preposterous, and I'm probably not making the best argument for those things, but, but, 
it's actual things that people have said and advocated for that on the basis of John six, um, you know, Pastor Hagen, your church shouldn't be practicing closed communion. Kind of silly. Um, and, and so why it matters, there, there is that point of connection in faith that you have been brought to faith, that you commune in faith. And so um, in faith, there is also the spiritual eating besides what we eat by mouth. Um, in Holy Communion, there's also the spiritual eating where your soul is fed with the incarnate word of God. Um, and that incarnate word of God who gives you his, his body and his blood together with the bread and the wine. Um, but that's like, you know, connecting three or four dots to string them together from you commune in faith, you receive by mouth Christ's body and blood together with the bread and the wine. And as you commune in faith, um, and Jesus gives you the forgiveness through his own body and blood, then your soul also feasts on the flesh and blood of the son of God in a spiritual way, not to deny the oral eating, which is the main thing, the eating and the drinking. But there's also the spiritual thing where your soul is fed, your faith is strengthened. And, and so in that sense, um, Holy Communion is feeding on the flesh and blood of the Son of God, as he says in John 6. But that's at the long end of the string that's, that began with faith. <laughs> and, and those blessings are yours in faith every time that you spend time with the Word of God in faith. Whew. Any questions? John 6, yes. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, and so verse 48, you have, um, you have the metaphor. And, and a metaphor is a specific um, mode of speech. Uh, you know, like simile is a comparison using like or as a metaphor uses is. Um, and it starts with the, the base thing, um, usually, and then something is this, and then the, the point of comparison. Um, so like the sky is a a blue blanket with with stars you know with glitter sprinkled across it whatever um you know that that is the metaphor yeah and, and the lint on the blue blanket is like stars yeah um but you in a metaphor unless unless you're a very skilled poet where the rules don't matter anymore a metaphor starts with the referent the thing that you're referring to um so like and then you progress to the thing that you're comparing to and so that's what jesus does here in verse in verse 48 he says i am the bread of life so comparison using like or as um or or different place i am i am the vine you are the branches i am the gate of the sheep i am the good shepherd um but he doesn't do that in the words of institution he he would flip it around this is my body um, it's, it's not the, it's not a metaphor. He starts with the thing being referred to, and then he says what it is. He starts with the referent. Um, this is this, this thing that I'm holding in my hand is my body. Um, and so the, even the metaphor thing doesn't work to say, oh, he's talking metaphorically in John six, and therefore it's a metaphor in, um, in the words of institution. Well, that doesn't fit because that's, that's not a metaphor, even in the language of the words of institution. All right, so then that brings us back to in, with, and under. Before we get to transubstantiation, we've talked about real presence, meaning in, with, and under. Uh, we've talked about representationalism, that it only re represents Christ's body and blood. And, um, and I guess together with that, that idea of representation is also that they, they think of these things as divine ordinances, which is divine commands that we, the church, have to do that we have to participate in and fulfill. Um, <coughs> when we talk about in, with, and under, um, <laughs> there's some kind of funny, other funny words. Um, so John 6 comes up because it, it was a discussion that took place near Capernaum. 
And so there's this thing called, or this idea called Capernaitic eating. Um, and so Capernaitic, Capernaitic eating, um, that's kind of a rough one to say, um, Capernaitic eating um, is this idea of you know, basically dismissing the Lord's Supper as cannibalism. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and that goes back all the way to the Romans. Um, there, there were some Romans who wanted to discredit the, the early Christians, and they're like, oh, these, these Christians, they get together, and they sacrifice babies, and then they drink and drink their blood. And, um, and it's like a total, total purposeful distortion. Um, but we, we title it Capernaitic eating because it's based on this bread of life. And these unbelievers here in John 6 are like, ew, flesh and blood, how can he do that? Um, so Capernaitic eating is, um, is the idea basically that, and, and it kind of gets together with the idea of partialism, um, that Christ's body is like divided up. And then, you know, hopefully you got a finger, maybe you got it, you know, like just the sort of things that, that usually pass, reason went too far. Um, we usually spend a little bit extra time about this on catechism um, because, you know, seventh and eighth grade minds are like, oh, what, what about this? What about this? What about this? Um, so Copernicus eating is that, that, that false teaching of, um, of cannibalism. Um, and so together with that, the truth is that each believer receives exactly what is promised. Well, each person receives by mouth exactly what is promised. Um, take and eat, this is my body. It's not like, you know, not as though Christ were divided. Um, by virtue of that hypostatic union, there's that word we talked about yesterday. Um, by virtue of the union of the two natures in the person of Christ, everything that, that is true about Jesus as God is true about Jesus as man. Um, there's, yeah, there's a complete communion in his two natures. Um, and without, without mixing the two or dividing the divine being, you know, we'll finish out the Athanasian creed there. So there's a complete communion between his two natures and their abilities. And so each person at the table can receive, can say, I receive the body of Christ. Um, I receive the body of Christ and was it in, was it with, was it under, uh, the bread? Yes. <laughs> um, there's, there's no division and God isn't being stingy. Um, when it comes to his own body. Um, the other idea, and this is this was another one that, that kind of came up at the time of the Reformation in the like late 1520s or early 1530s, um, as though Christ is contained inside that bread, um, that if you were able to break it open and see it, then you would be able to see, you know, like the, the flesh of Christ or the body of Christ contained in that bread. Um, and the, and I think it was Luther's comment was, um, I think it might even be in the Augsburg Confession, I don't know, um, but that we should not think of eating the bread in the Lord's Supper as though the, the presence of Christ is, is like the meat in a meat pie. <laughs> like that's the phrase that they used, um, like a you know chicken pot pie, and then okay, there's there's some there's some peas in there, there's some chicken in there. Okay, here's the wafer. There's some bread in there, and then there's some body in there too. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or like Tortino's pizza rolls or hot pockets, right? <laughs> Yeah, and, and so what we what we have um, is that each believer receives or each person receives by mouth Christ's body together with the bread and Christ's blood together with the wine. Is it in? Yes. Is it with? Yes. Is it under? Yes. It, it is not partialism as though the body of Christ is now being divided, um, and it is not it is not cannibalism as though we are literally consuming the flesh of God. Um, but that he is, he is really present, that he is um, sacramentally present. So when this, I guess this is the last little bit on, on this part, um, and then we'll probably take the true and false. Um, when we talk about the, the presence of God, that where God is present and how God is present, um, first thing, you know, let's start big and then shrink down. Uh, first thing, present everywhere omnipresent. God is omnipresent. So everywhere that the universe goes, God is there and beyond. 
Um, everything so small, God is smaller. Everything so large, God is larger. Omnipresence, God is present everywhere. Um, that number two, that God is present in a special way, wherever two or three are gathered together in his name. That he is that he is present with his church as they carry out the functions of the church, whether that is law, gospel, fellowship, um, any of that. Um, number three, God is present with each individual believer. That a believer can say, you know, um, that Paul says, you know, like in First Corinthians six, that your body is. A, don't you know that your body body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That and and the word there, you know, talking about your actual literal physical body. Um, that when God brought you to faith, that He came to dwell within within your heart in a special way. Um, so that is, you know, the presence within the individual Christian. Um, there's like two others that I'm going to skip over for now, um, but then we get to the sacramental presence. So when when we get to the sacrament, um, and this is this is often synonymous with real presence, but maybe a little bit of a difference here. Um, that we use the term real presence to define what we are receiving by mouth in the Lord's Supper. Um, the term sacramental presence is that Jesus is present together with the exercise of his sacraments and that he is present in a special way that isn't like omnipresence. He is present everywhere. That isn't just like, you know, dwelling within the hearts of believers. That isn't just, um, you know, dwelling among his church where two or three are gathered together. Um, but that it is a special presence that he is in connection with his sacrament. You know, that's how he came up with that term. It is a sacramental presence. Um, and, and we don't go much beyond that to define it other than to say, well, there is a, another special, you know, presence that Jesus has promised here that isn't merely, um, you know, eating by mouth, and this is what you receive by mouth, the real presence, but the fact that Jesus himself has promised to localize himself in the sacrament during this time. Maybe that, that's the last part. Um, so the, the last part is um, the question of when. <laughs> the question of when. When is Jesus present in the sacrament? Um, and this this gets into, you know, the idea of, you know, transubstantiation is usually talked about here, where transubstantiation is the Roman Catholic idea that the body and blood are changed by a priest um, irrevocably into the bread and the wine. And so whatever isn't consumed gets locked up in the little reliquary um, for, the, for the leftovers uh, at the altar there, and then they are pulled out again for, for the next use. And, um, and so only a priest can make that change because only a priest can do a representation of the body of Christ in an unbloody way. That's why he's called a priest. And so if you have a parish that, doesn't, that has more churches than priests, then the priest goes around and he has mass at all the places and he dedicates, you know, like an entire table or a table and a half or however much they need of, of the, the host, the wafer, the bread, um, so that they can have the bread there. And then the local deacon can distribute it. But the deacon doesn't, you know, hasn't been ordained. And so according to their their system he isn't a member of the holy orders and he cannot he cannot be the one to represent christ in an unbloody way um and so that's the idea of transubstantiation that you change entirely from one into the other and you're not changing back that that creates a few issues um aside from number one it is not in line with the text um number two what do you do with the leftovers and um and i guess those are the two big things and so when we talk about when we talk about the mo the the time of presence or the moment of presence um transubstantiation which is false says it just happens when the priest does this properly uh, and then it never changes back um the the lutheran belief lutheran teaching is that we don't we don't know and we're not going to take a doctrinal stance on exactly when that real presence happens um I think it's a very logical deduction to say that, you know, everything else happens by the word of God and that we connected to the, the word of God. And, and so I, I encourage, and I think this is probably, 
a majority of, of our pastorate, at least those who have given it some thought, um, would, would connect the real presence to the moment, the words of institution. Um, and so that would be the, you know, the, the verba, or what we call them, the words, um, or the institutionalists. I, I don't know if that's the exact right word. Um, the other idea is that since it is a communal meal, then, and, and Luther even says in like the fourth part of Holy Communion in the small catechism, that these words are the main thing in the sacrament besides the eating and drinking, that we're not gonna be parading the hosts around in a Corpus Christi, a body of Christ festival. We are here to eat and to drink. <laughs> and so the other idea, which is a somewhat minority view, is that the, the body of Christ becomes present in the reception. Uh, so in the, in the eating, in the drinking. Um, and at, at least in Luther's life, you know, fairly early on when he had come out of his, um, come out of being a, a priest and, um, then became a Lutheran, <laughs> um, he was, I think he tended more toward the receptionist side. And then later in life, he tended more toward the, uh, institutionalist side. I don't know if that, that's not the right word. Um, where, you know, when he was an older, older man and he spilled a little bit of the wine, then he like set everything down and then got down and licked it up. Um, you know, when, when there's a little bit on the floor, then, you know, Pastor Hagen just grabs the cloth and we, we wipe it up. Um, but we still treat it in a respectful way. Um, and so the, the moment of presence, um, isn't told us, but, and, and so our, the official stance, I guess, is that. Christ is present according to his promise when his sacrament is properly celebrated in the, in the usus, in the use of the sacrament. Um, and so, you know, basically, you know, that was something that, that was an issue in the ELS um, back in the 90s. And, and it created some, you know, there were some very strong opinions on both sides. Um, and so they reached out to our seminary and said, all right, can you settle this for us? Um, and our seminary said, well, yeah, um, how about God hasn't told us? And so we'll just say when we use the sacrament properly, then Christ is there exactly as he promised. So then practically speaking, you know, if, um, if Pastor Hagen fumbles a wafer and, and it floats to the floor, I'll pick it up and put it on the altar. And then between tables, I'll pop it in my mouth because I'm not going to mix it in because somebody will be like, well, you know, did that, did that one fall on the floor? Um, or it'll create some, uh, some wondering in the mind. Um, or if there's a little bit of a spill, then we, then we just wipe it up. Um, and if we don't have, you know, this hasn't been a case in a long time, but it happens occasionally. Um, if there aren't enough supplies on the altar, um, the, we, we normally just reconsecrate them you know if somebody has to go back and get like another sleeve of wafers then we put it in and then we go through the whole words of institution again um and then we continue um so then other practical considerations um there are there is the consideration of those who have a a gluten intolerance um you know like celiac disease where it's not just, you know, I prefer my gluten-free bread when I get my, you know, when I go to Panera Bread <laughs> or whatever it is, um, but it's an actual, actual thing. Um, that was one lady where I had um, served a couple of Sundays, you know, when pastor's on vacation and she had a, a severe intolerance for gluten. And so we, um, she brought her own little rice wafer and um, in a bag. And then I put that on its own plate up at the altar. And so it was there consecrated with the elements. And then when she, when she came up, I, you know, gave her her little baggie and then she ate from that, um, that it couldn't even be mingled with the other, the other, uh, wafers. Um, and so Jesus, says, Jesus says bread. Um, and there, there is good practice, um, with Passover that it was unleavened bread. They, they spent, you know, two, almost two weeks clear. Well, eight days clearing out the leaven from their homes. They didn't have any leftover sourdough starter. Um, and so the, the bread that they make is flat. Um, it is possible to, to leaven bread. I'm not a baker, obviously. It is possible to leaven bread with like baking soda. And so one of our churches back in Ottawa, uh, the one who, who liked to try novel things, I guess, um, the ladies in their church baked the bread for, for Holy Communion and they always leavened it with baking soda. Um, 
I thought that was an unnecessary novelty. Yeah, yeah. That was like an unnecessary novelty where it, where it creates, you know, it, it's distracting from, from the norm. Um, but Jesus said it's bread. And, you know, at some point, some pastors should have just said, well, let's not do this. Let's just do what everybody else does, a wafer that is an unleavened bread. It keeps nicely. You don't have to worry about baking bread and find some other way to serve the Lord. Thank you for your service. <laughs> um, when we get to when we get to wine, um, we're talking about the fruit of the vine, that Jesus says, I will not drink this fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. By the time Passover rolls around in Israel, um, there's no there's no grape juice left in in the city at least at the time of jesus because they didn't have a way to to stop fermentation from happening and that didn't happen until 19th century when a you know baptist or baptist leaning pastor who um who couldn't believe that we would celebrate holy communion and drink alcohol because don't you know alcohol is sinful in and of itself and so he solved this conundrum instead of, you know, saying maybe his doctrine was wrong. He solved this conundrum by creating an invention that will stop fermentation. Um, his last name was Welch. And so we have Welch's grape juice. Um, and so Welch's grape juice, you know, in and of itself will, will not continue to ferment. Um, and so you can have juice any time of the year. Juice, yeah, juice and chemicals. See, yeah, I don't know what else is in there. Um, would it be possible to to have like blackberry wine, raspberry wine, a better tasting wine? We're going to stick with Manischewitz because I like Manischewitz. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it it might be um, because Jesus says fruit fruit of the vine. That that's what. Yeah, Arlington. Ar Arlington made made their own wine and they had somebody who would bring in the wine and sometimes it was he made a port and sometimes it was you know something else Zion yeah Zion and Monroe also um, that's awesome <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. So we we don't we use we use wine we use uh, grape wine. Um, there's no there's no reason and no warrant I think to change away from grapes, um, and and there's no reason aside from you know potential potential medical or maybe a um, you know. If somebody has had an issue with alcohol in the past, that you know they feel that take having alcohol in the Lord's Supper would you know not be beneficial to their recovery, their whatever the case may be. Um, our preference, my preference, even then, is that we use dealcoholized wine. So it's gone through a whole winemaking process, and then the alcohol was like cooked out of it, and and it's kind of helpful then because it's a different color. I get the white stuff, even though they have red, so I get white, so you know what it is. Um, and 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 sometimes, like even back in Ottawa, um, if somebody was realized that they were pregnant, especially like first baby, you're like, oh no, can I have this, you know, tablespoon of wine, or is it going to harm my child? Um, and you know, there you can you could talk about those things. Yeah. You can talk about these things, but at the end of the day, um, there's usually bigger things to bigger things to address. Um, so yeah, the, the Lord's Supper. Uh, what other true and false do we have left? These should be fairly easy. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, true and false. Uh, First one, the Lord's Supper always gives the forgiveness of sins, true or false, and why? All right, false. Why? Because they did not receive the body and blood of Christ. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so the way, the way I kind of try to explain this is everybody receives by mouth the same thing. Those who come in faith, 
Faith is basically repentance. Repentance and faith are synonymous. Um, those who come in faith receive the spiritual blessing of forgiveness. Those who do not come in faith do not receive the spiritual blessing of forgiveness. They put themselves under God's judgment. Um, and that, you know, God's judgment from 1 Corinthians 11, that's where the King James Version got it wrong. Um, they translated it as they placed themselves under God's condemnation. Condemnation is an, is like strong judgment. In Greek, it's kata krino. Um, and the word in 1 Corinthians 11 is just krino, judgment. So they place themselves under God's judgment. When Paul says that, then he goes on and says, well, that is why a number of you have fallen asleep. So, you know, <laughs> or gotten ill or fallen asleep. Yeah, have fallen, gotten ill or fallen asleep. Um, and so it's like, well, cool, we're going to have communion often. We are going to, you know, celebrate it every time. We're not going to say it's more special if you have it less often. Like, just try that with your loved one. Um, it's more special if you tell them I love you less often, right? <laughs> that here in the Lord's Supper, that Jesus is telling you that he loves you and he is giving you your forgiveness again. Um, and so we'll take care of the, take, take this often. Um, where is I going with that? Oh yeah, so, so um, if all of a sudden a church says, wait a minute, we've just had like eight funerals in the last month and a half, what's going on? <laughs> That's where you, let's, let's put the brakes on communion and we'll have like, you know, four or six weeks on, you know, talking about communion and then hopefully we'll have a better attitude when we get back to the Lord's table. Because, you know, when, when, when Paul says, you know, you, be careful when you come to the Lord's table or else you will place yourself under God's judgment, the two examples he gives is people, there's a lot of people sick and there's a lot of people dying. <laughs> God doesn't limit himself to that, but if those are the two examples, then it's like, well, we should at least pay attention to that a little bit. Yeah, I think it, it, it may have been, um, I want to say in the Dakota, Montana district, and it may have even been the same church or a nearby church um, where, you know, this is, a, this is a good church story. No, it, it may have been there too. This is a good church story um, where, where a church had churned through like four or five pastors in a row, um, you know, resigned in disgrace, asked to get a call out, uh, retired, like, I'm not putting up with this. And, um, and finally, after like a string of four pastors, give or take, in a short period of time, the district president came to, came to town. And, um, and then he, he took the service. And, um, and then he gave the sermon. And his sermon was, um, well, you, you all know why I'm here. Um, because you've driven out another pastor, you've treated him reprehensibly like the other three guys before him, and so you're not going to hear any gospel today. We are all going to sit here and think of the blessing that we have in having somebody who comes to preach God's word to us, but you will not receive any gospel today. And then he sat down and looked at his watch for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, and and I mean, I've, I've met him and I've got the utmost respect for him. He's not, he's not a teddy bear, but he's, uh, he's not a pushover. Yeah. He's, he's not a harsh person, um, but he's not a pushover either. Um, I probably have one or two other stories like that when we eventually get to chapter 15 talking about the church. Yeah. There, there's a certain stubbornness like in, in different areas of the, of the, of our country. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a good way of putting it. Um, that the forgiveness is is always it's always there because Christ's body and blood is always there. Um, that if somebody is coming in on repentance, then you know that that's on you. Um, and if somebody is you know hiding a particular sin and is you know unrepentant about it, well. I'm sure it's never happened that like something is an open secret in the congregation and everybody except the pastor knows. Um, but at the end of the, I know that, that was a little bit of sarcasm, a little bit of sarcasm, just a little bit. Um, but at the end of the day, God knows, and and we we do our best to to teach these things and to teach seriousness about these things. Um, yeah, and so the first one, true or false, the Lord's Supper always gives forgiveness of sins. 
Um, the forgiveness of sins is given to the penitent, to those who come in faith. Uh, how about number two? The faith of the one giving me the supper or those receiving the supper with me is inconsequential because the Lord's Supper is a special meal between me and God. Inconsequential of of little consequence, excuse me. Yeah, that is false. Um, because faith is not just a, it's between me and God thing. Um, communion, Holy Communion, a joint partaking together that we share in fellowship together through this same table. And so the, the three fellowships, um, the elements together with the body and blood of Christ, um, the second fellowship um, among the participants of the table, third fellowship between each individual believer and God. And last one, true or false, a person must receive the Lord's Supper in order to be saved. False. Yep. Um, it, is, it is especially comforting, you know, if somebody is able to, um, when they know that their end is near. Um, but it's not, it's not even like Lutheran last rites. We don't have such a thing as last rites. Um, we, you know, we, we are there to, to bring comfort, and that comfort is there um, whether they simply hear the word or whether they receive the sacrament as well. And so, you know, I guess the last part, I touched on this last time, that we don't commune people in a coma, um, that my, you know, my baseline standard is that you can hold the thought from confession of sins all the way through distribution. Um, and if somebody's kind of borderline, then I'll move the confession from, you know, the very beginning. It's usually start with the confession and then um, a reading and devotion and then the word, you know, the sacrament. Sometimes I'll move the, um, the, the confession of sins to right before the sacrament. Um, so it's like two, two minutes, you know, tops, and then we'll see how things go next time. Um, yeah, we don't commune those in, in a coma. We don't commune infants. Um, but all for the same purpose, because Christ's body and blood truly is present together with bread and the wine. Yeah. Yeah, good question. Uh, talking about dementia or Alzheimer's, and, um, and this is a large and, and growing segment of our society. Um, and it is true that, that in a lot of those cases, you can't commune them. There may be a day, you know, don't forget your communion set because there might be a surprise you. Um, but the idea there, um, at least my practice, is that I go and talk to them uh, the same way as, as somebody who is more mentally capable. Um, because I, I don't have a specific, you know, word from God that, you know, their, their time of grace is over and they are not going to lose it. Aside from, you know, John 10, where Jesus says, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. And, and he holds on to his sheep. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Um, but also in John 10, he connects that to his, um, his voice that they listen to my voice. And that's how, um, and so on the one hand, we, we have confidence that Jesus will hold on to them, that the fact that I'm not communing granny doesn't mean that granny is no longer a Lutheran or no longer a Christian. It just means that granny isn't, doesn't have the mental capabilities to discern herself, to judge herself. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess that, that's another way of putting it. Um, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, um, that, that demands on some level a semblance of memory. Um, you know, that you've been instructed in this, that you, that you know what's going on, um, and that if somebody's, somebody's memory is not there, doesn't mean that they don't have faith, but that they've, they've no longer rise to that level of being able to judge themselves, to remember their Lord, to recognize what they're eating and drinking. I think that that's a good memory hook for sure. Yeah. Yeah, because and, and when, whether you're talking about somebody with, with Alzheimer's or an infant or somebody 
of, um, of a young age, but with reduced mental capabilities from our perception. Um, we confess in all those cases that the word works, that holy baptism works, and that this person is still a member of the body of Christ. Yeah, that we should be like them. Um, but even even then, our our society recognizes, you know, maybe your infant isn't capable for driving, but when they reach a certain age, then they have that capability. When they reach another milestone in life, maybe they lose that capability uh, for whatever reason. Communion isn't driving, um, but we, we are at least acquainted with that concept from other areas and avenues of our life. So that wraps us up. Next time we'll get into chapter 15 and the church. Talking about the invisible church and the visible church and what is going on. Um, and this one, I won't say that this one will go faster, um, but I'll pretend to say that I think it might. <laughs> Thank you very much.